Good morning, everyone. We will continue our study this morning of the Gospel of Mark. We will be in chapter 14. The larger, greater section is verse 1 through 52. And we will work under the heading, The Dawning of the Kingdom of God. We have spoke at length throughout this Throughout our time in the Gospel of Mark, we have spoke at length concerning the concept of the kingdom of God, or the revealing of the kingdom of God. This revealing of the kingdom of God, according to John Piper, was most gloriously displayed in a crucified and risen king. Thus, as Jesus' earthly ministry begins to come to an end, he begins to prepare his people He begins to prepare the church throughout all the generations how to handle, how to act, how to respond to his crucifixion and to his resurrection. And he tells them to remember, to remember, to remember. This notion of remembering is littered throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy says, remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in these 40 years in the wilderness. Ecclesiastes says, remember also your creator. Isaiah writes, remember the former things of old, for I am your God and there is no other. John Bloom puts it this way, he says that God has surrounded us with memorials. The entire Bible itself is a memorial. We meditate on it to daily remember. The Sabbath was a memorial to Israel's freedom from Egyptian slavery. The church switched it to Sundays as a memorial to Christ's resurrection. Israel's great gathering feast days were memorials. Each Christmas, each Easter is a memorial so that we remember As Christians, we are called to remember the works of God and his faithfulness and not to forget. Deuteronomy 6.12 says, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But it is not always easy to remember, is it, brother Christian, sister Christian? I heard a joke this week about a couple who were in their 90s that were having issues remembering things. And they went to the doctor's office, and the doctor said it would be wise if you began to write things down. That evening, the husband got up and he asked his wife if she wanted anything. She said she would like a bowl of ice cream. She says, you know, I think you might need to write it down. And he griped back, no, I don't need to write it down, I remember. She's like, well, could I have some strawberries on it? And now I am certain you need to write this down. Frustrated, he says, I do not need to write this down. You want ice cream with strawberries. So then she says, well, can I have some whipped cream on it? Infuriated, he says, I can remember this. Ice cream, strawberries, and whipped cream. So he goes into the kitchen And after about 20 minutes, he returns and hands her a plate of bacon and eggs. And she stares at the plate for a moment, and she shakes her head and says, And where is my toast? (laughs) 
but it's teens, it's millennials who struggle to remember as well. Eve Martyr, who's a neuroscientist at Brandeis University, says that our students, our children, have seemingly moved their storage from their brains to their phones and to their tablets. What is more, they are completely convinced that because they can, in principle, access the world's knowledge with a few keystrokes, there is little reason to remember anything. This is certainly not what Christ was advocating for on his final days on this earth. Our theme this morning that we will be looking at in Mark chapter 14, or the thesis this morning, is simple. Brother Christian, sister Christian, remember the cross. Remember, celebrate, treasure Jesus' work on the cross until he returns. Our thesis this morning, Brother Christian, Sister Christian, remember the cross. Remember, celebrate, treasure Jesus' work on the cross until he returns. We will be looking this morning at Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. It is found on page 851 in the Pew Bible. If you do not have a Pew Bible, consider that our gift to you. Again, we will be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And we thank you for Jesus' work on the cross. Lord, I pray that we, as we go through these verses this morning, Lord, we remember your crucifixion. We celebrate your resurrection and that we will be with you eternally, eternally if we confess our sins and trust you as the only means of our salvation. Father, your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect in weakness. Lord, we are called to boast all the more gladly in our weakness so that the power of Jesus Christ rests upon us. Father, I pray that my words this morning are glorifying to you. I pray that you work through my weakness and any deficiencies that I have and that the Holy Spirit convicts this dear congregation. It convicts them of their need for remembering the gospel every day of their life. And no matter what they are going through, they have peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
that they will be with you again as a child of the Most High God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some background or some historical context before we dive into the verses this morning concerning Mark chapter 14. We have a collision course of sorts going on between the chief priest and between Jesus Christ at this stage. In chapter 14, the chief priest, they are plotting to kill Jesus at this stage. Jesus has been anointed by Mary of Bethany which is a foreshadowing, if you will, or a prepping for his upcoming burial. Judas has gone to the chief priest and has made them aware of his whereabouts. The chief priest, they want to arrest Jesus as inconspicuously as possible, so this is good knowledge for them to have. And then Jesus sends two of his disciples to meet a man to lead them to a guest room or an upper room where they can begin to prepare the Passover meal. And this Passover meal is a memorial, if you will, celebrating Israel's exodus out of Egypt, where Israel was delivered, or when Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery. And while the disciples and Jesus are eating the Passover meal, Jesus notes that one of his disciples will betray him. And then Jesus institutes, in the midst of this Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. And it begins in verse 22. And as they, Jesus and the disciples, were eating, he, Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Again, in the midst of the Passover meal, Jesus takes bread. He separates bread from the common use that it was being used for in the Passover meal. And he starts, he begins, he institutes, he memorializes a new feast that will take place. A a sacrament that will take place which will commemorate the suffering of Jesus Christ and his death for his people on the cross. Jesus breaks the bread. And just as Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus with oil, foreshadowing his upcoming burial, this breaking of the bread is a foreshadowing of the suffering that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would undergo in the days to follow. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This breaking of the communion bread is a foreshadowing of the piercing, the crushing, the chastisement, the wounding that Jesus would undergo for his people, for his flock, for his church, of future generations. Adam Clark puts it this way. He says, This act was designed by our Lord to shadow forth the wounding, the piercing, and the breaking of his body upon the cross. And all of this was essentially necessary to the making of full atonement for the sin of the world 
So it is of vast importance that this apparently little circumstance, the breaking of the bread, should be carefully attended to. That the breaking of this bread should be attended to. Now why should it be attended to? Why should we remember the breaking of the bread? That our Lord and Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, because he died the most egregious, the most disrespectful way possible he could under Roman law. He died in a way that only the most notorious, only the most wicked criminals died. Our Christ, the one who gave himself up for each one of us, was beaten. He was spit on. He was blindfolded. He was struck. He was flogged, which means he was likely bound to a stake, struck with a leather whip that likely had some type of leather balls on the end of this whip. He was beaten so severely with this whip, he was unable to bear the weight of his cross. And then he was nailed to it. And the nails were driven in so deeply, it was deep enough to secure him onto that tree. And then the cross was lifted up. And in front of the cross, there was a deep hole. And the cross was pushed into that hole. And it fell violently into that hole, likely causing convulsive shock and suffering. And there our Messiah hung there. He died in pain and exhaustion and hunger and in thirst. Why do we attend to the breaking of the bread? Why do we remember the breaking of the bread? Why do we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Because the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Why do we remember the crucifixion? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we remember the crucifixion? Why do we remember the breaking of the bread? We have a God who was willing to die for his sheep. That means you, sister Christian. That means you, brother Christian. Willing to die for his sheep. Verse 23, it says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, it was not only the bread that marked or commemorated the Lord's Supper or this event. It was also the cup or the wine or the fruit of the vine, which was a representation of Jesus' blood poured out and shed for the remission of our sins. And there is much, much, much to unpack concerning the significance of the cup, some of which we will unpack in the following verse. Some, not all, not most, some of which. But the focus in this verse will revolve around one word. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, And they all 
drank of it. All of them drank of it. This all was spoken of the 12 disciples. They were the all that were present. But this all also has a much weightier context in mind as well. Jesus said that greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. All of Jesus' friends should drink. All of Jesus' friends should commemorate. All of Jesus' friends should remember his work, his accomplishment on the cross. This drinking of the cup is not for one special group of Christians. It is not for one elite group of Christians. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for people groups of every tongue and of every nation. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for people groups that are white, that are black, that are brown, that are yellow, that are red. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for people groups that are rich and that are poor. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for the upper, for the middle, and for the lower class. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for people that we think have it together and people that don't have it together. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for the weak and for the strong. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for the short and for the tall, for the learned, and for the simple. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for those that are healthy and that are sick. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for the teenager, the adult, and the elderly. The blood of Christ was poured out for the deaf, the blind, the crippled, the sick, the downtrodden, depressed. The blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for people groups that are married, single, divorced, widow, and widower. And since the blood of Jesus Christ was poured out for people groups of every tongue and of every nation, no matter of the ethnic makeup, the demographics, or the socioeconomic status, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the partaking of the communion cup is for you, brother Christian, sister Christian. It is not just for some. It is not just for an elite group of Christians. Jesus' blood was poured out on the cross for people groups of every tongue and of every nation. And if we confess that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, and we trust him as the only means of our salvation, the partaking, the remembering, the commemorating, the celebrating of the communion cup is for you. And as James Burton Kaufman says, to withhold withhold this from anyone that confesses that Jesus is the Christ is is to fall short of God's command. Verse 24, it says, And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is my blood of the covenant. This is my agreement. This is my pledge. This is my promise. This covenant-making was a practice displayed throughout the scriptures. God made many of covenants with his people. And it is displayed brilliantly, in my mind, in the book of Hebrews, which we will look at very briefly, chapter 9. If I were to give you a tweet-size synopsis, that means short, if you're not familiar with Twitter, 
a tweet-sized synopsis of what the book of Hebrews is about, I would say that Jesus Christ is the substance, or he is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law that had been given. And in Hebrews 9, verse 1, it says that a covenant was made with Moses and with the people of Israel, the Mosaic covenant. And the covenant is actually really simple. God gives the law, and if the people of Israel follow it, God will bless the people. You do this, I do that. And part of the regulations that were given were, how do you approach God? Where do you approach God? How do you worship God? And within the law was instructions about the tabernacle or the tent of worship. And what God did was the tabernacle was split into two sections. And the innermost section was called the Holy of Holies, and it was where God would appear to his people. Leviticus 16, 2. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, this is according to Leviticus 16, a priest would go into this innermost chamber of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed goat on the mercy seat, which was kind of like the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a practice which represented the cleansing of sin, the cleansing of the sin within the tabernacle. And then the priest would get a second goat, and he would lay hands on the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people over this goat, and he would send the goat out into the wilderness, a scapegoat, if you will. And this practice represented the removal of the sins of the people. It is an absolutely beautiful and brilliant picture of substitutionary atonement where the innocent goat is dying and carrying away the sins of the guilty people. It is a picture, of point, a picture pointing to something far greater. And in verse 10 of Hebrews, it said this practice was done year after year after year after year, and that the animal blood ceremonially or ritually was efficient in removing the pollutants or the effects of sin. But then verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 9 asks this question. If the animal blood was ceremonial or ritually efficient in removing the pollutants of sin, verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. If the animal blood was ceremonially efficient, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences, cleanse us from acts that lead to death so that we may serve a living God. Instead of offering a goat, what if Christ offered his own blood? And as I read through that text and meditated on that text, the one phrase I could not get out of my mind 
was that Christ offered himself. He did not offer a goat to be killed. He did not offer a goat to be taken in the wilderness. He made the ultimate sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice one can make, himself. Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease as the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. Since the two children had the same rare blood type, the little boy was the ideal donor. Would you like to give your blood, Mary, the doctor, to Mary, the doctor asked. Johnny hesitated. His lip started to tremble. And then he smiles and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled in the hospital room. Mary, pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy, neither spoke. But when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, Johnny's voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated, why his lip had trembled when he agreed to donate his blood. He thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. Coleman concludes, in that brief moment, he made his great decision. Johnny, fortunately, didn't have to die to save his sister. Each of us, however, has a condition more serious than Mary's, and it requires Jesus' blood and his life. And he would make the ultimate sacrifice for his children. That he would be the substitute for the sins of his children. In Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, my father-in-law, while we were on vacation, pointed out to me that Jesus says that I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before before I suffer like a woman longing to meet the birth of her child. Longing to meet her child. Jesus longed for the day in which he were to offer himself up for his people, no matter the suffering that he was to endure. Spurgeon says that you never hear Jesus say in Pilate's judgment, hail one word that would let you imagine he was sorry that he had undertaken so costly a sacrifice for us. When his hands were pierced, when he is parched with fever, when his tongue is dried like a a shard of pottery, when his whole body is dissolved into the dust of death, you never hear a groan or a shriek that looks like Jesus is going back on his commitment for his people. Why? Why? Why did Jesus not even for a second think of going back on his commitment? Hebrews 12:2 says that Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross. 
the joy that was set before him, meaning the fulfilling of the will of the Father to reconcile his children back to himself. Jesus was so, full, so committed to fully doing the will of the Father. It was joy that was set before him. That's why he endured the cross. Jesus Christ joyfully offered himself as the atonement, as the sacrifice for guilty man before the Father to fulfill the Father's will and reconciling of bringing his children back to himself. So God be the glory for that church. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, and Jesus is speaking here, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Although Christ is joyfully committed to the Father's will, as he is going through this with the disciples in the upper room that evening, you have to think that there is some confusion going through their mind. That there is some type of anxiety, there is some type of fear, there is some type of sadness that has taken place. These men have followed Jesus for years throughout his, his ministry. And Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When I drink it new. When I commune with you again in the kingdom of God. There is confidence in this passage Yes, there is crucifixion on the horizon for Jesus Christ. But through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he will crush the serpent's head. That he will defeat death. He will slay sin once and for all. There is a resurrection on the horizon. And that his children will celebrate with him eternally in heaven as well. Amidst the concern, amidst the pain, amidst the fear, amidst the anxiety in the upper room that evening, Jesus comforts them with the resurrection. There is confidence that he will slay the serpent's head through his crucifixion. In John chapter 16, verses 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world, there will be tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Jesus Christ has already won. We are dead in our sins. We have fallen short of the perfect, holy perfection of God, and we have separated ourselves from God. We deserve his wrath. We deserve God's holy and just wrath. But being that God loved his children, he came into this world as Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly that we could never never fulfill. He was tempted just like you or I. And he was a sinless, perfect human individual. And then he freely, because of his love for his flock, his willingness to fulfill perfectly the will of the Father, offered himself. He did not offer a goat. 
to be killed and to be sent out into the wilderness. Jesus Christ offered himself and he bore the wrath that we deserve for our sins. And three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death, slaying sin, and crushing the serpent's head once and for all. Brother Christian, sister Christian, if you want to be comforted in any situation in the here and now, if you want your application of how to apply these verses to your life, remember, remember, remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has overcome the world. Paul Harvey tells a story. He says, It is gratitude that prompted an old man to visit an old broken pier on the eastern seacoast of Florida. Every Friday night until his death, he would return, walking slowly and slightly stooped with a large bucket of shrimp. The seagulls would flock to this old man, and he would feed them from his bucket. Many years before, in 1942, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker was on a mission on a B-17 to deliver an important message to General Douglas MacArthur. But there was an unexpected detour, which would hurl Captain Eddie into one of the most harrowing adventures of his life. Somewhere over the South Pacific, his plane became lost beyond the reach of radio. Fuel ran dangerously low, so he ditched his plane into the ocean. And for nearly a month, Captain Eddie would fight the water and the weather and the scorching sun. Eight days out, his rations were long gone, and it would take a miracle to sustain him. And a miracle occurred. He noted, with my hat pulled down over my eyes to keep the sun out, I dozed off, and something landed on my head. I knew that it was a seagull. I don't know how I knew, I just knew, and the goal meant food if I could catch it. Captain Eddie caught the seagull. Its flesh was eaten. Its intestines were used as bait to catch fish. Captain Eddie made it because a lone seagull, uncharacteristically hundreds of miles from land, offered itself as a sacrifice. And now you also know that Captain Eddie has never forgotten because every Friday evening... You could see an old man walking, his bucket filled with shrimp to feed the seagulls, to remember that one which on the day long past gave itself without a struggle, like manna in the wilderness. Brother Christian, Sister Christian, if you have come here sick this morning, be comforted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have come here absolutely broken by your sin that you committed this week, and I know the feeling, be comforted in remembering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have come here depressed about the past, be comforted as you remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have come here fearful about what the week ahead has, 
Be comforted in remembering the resurrection. If you are here anxious this morning about anything going on, be comforted as you remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you are hopeless, if you are sad this morning, be comforted as you remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be comforted as you remember, as you commemorate, as you treasure each and every day, brother Christian, sister Christian, that Jesus Christ has overcome the world that you have victory in Jesus Christ. John 14, 3, Jesus says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you, may, you and me may also be. You have victory in Jesus Christ this morning through his perfect work on the cross. If we confess our sins as we trust him as the only means of salvation, Jesus Christ, three days later, rose from the dead. He has conquered the world. And we will drink with him anew in an eternal kingdom of God. Don't you ever forget that. That through his work on the cross, for those that have faith in him, we will drink with him anew in an eternal kingdom of God of God. To God be the glory for that message, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,